Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jacob Hash. I'm part of the Faith Missionary family here, um, and I have the privilege of reading uh, today's scripture reading, which is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, which is traditionally known as the Lord's Prayer. Now, uh, this prayer is, is one that we Christians pray wherever Christianity has taken root in order to learn together to sing um, and to pray. And where I grew up, which is in Poland, I grew up there as a missionary kid, um, and it's also where my wife Becca and I are headed as missionaries. Um, we pray that prayer like this. Ojcze nasz, któryś jest w niebie, święć się imię Twoje, przyjdź królestwo Twoje. Bądź wola Twoja, jako w niebie, tak i na ziemi. Chleba naszego powszedniego daj nam dzisiaj i odpuść nam nasze winy, jako i my odpuszczamy naszym winowajcom. I nie wódz nas na pokuszenie, ale nas baw od złego. Albowiem Twoje jest królestwo i chwała i moc na wieki wieków. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jacob. Have a seat. I'm Pastor Joey, one of the, the pastors here. If we've never met, I'd love for you to introduce yourself uh, after the services. We'd love to say hi and get to know you a little bit. Uh, of course, I've told you guys about uh, some of our, uh, my wife and I, and our, our journey, our story, especially um, our infertility uh, saga. So it was only a couple of months ago that I found myself uh, again in a surgery waiting room. Uh, we had gotten up early. We had headed into the, the hospital. We had to be there at 5.30 in the morning to do all the paperwork and check insurance and do all that stuff, get checked in. And uh, before the, the nurses wheeled uh, Jenna back for you know, a, another surgery, this was the surgery that was going to end once and for all our, our attempts to have another kid. Uh, so there was a lot of emotion going into the morning. So they wheeled Jenna back, and I'd brought books with me, and I had my laptop, and I had my phone and headphones and, and music that I could listen to, uh, but none of it could really hold my attention for very long. I tried, tried different things, uh, just mostly just sat there waiting and wondering what was happening back in the OR. And you know how it is with surgery. As much as you trust the doctors and the nurses, and you know that they're going to do a pretty good job, there's still nothing you can personally do to affect the outcome of the surgery. That, that sense of impotence and powerlessness is it's overwhelming. It's like a you know, plague of locusts just buzzing in the back of your head. So I began to pray, or at least I tried to pray. I couldn't think of any words. I... Uh, kind of stumbled around for a little bit and then gave up. You know, when it, when it really mattered, when the most important uh, thing to me in my life was out of my hands and out of my control, the anxiety drowned out every rational thought that I had. I tried to pray and I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't find the words. Now, we all know prayer is something that Christians should do and should do joyfully and should do regularly and should do well, and yet it seems like prayer is often the most difficult part of our spiritual lives. I've always stumbled around with prayer my whole Christian life. I've never felt like I've quite got it figured out. There were seasons when prayer was easy for me when in high school when I rediscovered my faith and recommitted to Christ. Uh, I loved to pray. I had a bedroom all by myself. It was at one end of the house and everybody else was at the other end of the house. I could lay in bed, pray out loud, no one would hear me, and I loved it. 
uh, my prayer life really grew, and then I went to college and I got a roommate, and that kind of prayer got awkward, and my prayer life kind of atrophied. I mean, there were other things going on in my life, uh, of course, that contributed to my prayerlessness, Um, but I've been around long enough to know that that kind of experience isn't unique to me. Uh, It's something some of you can maybe relate to. I mean, how many of us here would say we would love to be able to pray more consistently, pray more faithfully, pray more powerfully, just get more of a sense of God and his presence when we pray? Or maybe we just wish prayer wasn't so much of a chore, you know, a burden, something to check off the list before going to bed for the night. Now, I know there's some at faith who don't resonate at all with those statements and that experience. For them, prayer is just a great opportunity of rejoicing in God's presence, of delighting in their salvation. It's a privilege they look forward to regularly. Or maybe you've experienced both at different seasons of your life. But I found that the Anytime you get a, a decently sized group of people together, it seems like there's more for whom prayer is a struggle and a duty, rarely a delight, than there are those for whom prayer is a regular habit that they enjoy and look forward to. Now, I don't know where you personally put yourself in that sort of pendulum swing back and forth from, uh, from feeling like prayer is a duty to feeling like prayer is a delight, but I think we can all agree we'd like to grow more in our praying, and how we pray, how we pray. If only someone further along in the journey would turn around and maybe teach us how they got where they are so we could learn from them and learn how to pray. When I was in that uh, waiting room in the OR and I didn't have any uh, words left to pray, Uh, Not intentionally, but just almost accidentally, I found myself turning back to an old prayer that I had learned as a child at St. Mary's Church in Pella, Iowa. Every week at the end of every single service, the entire congregation would stand, spread out, hold hands across every pew, up and down every aisle, and we would recite together in that rhythmic and kind of lyrical way this prayer that you've heard. We'd say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then we would all pause and the priest would say a few words and then we'd come back in at the end and say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I didn't make a conscious choice in the waiting room to start reciting the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer or the Our Father or the Paternoster or the whatever you want to call it. It just started happening almost like a self-soothing exercise, and I think I might have gotten through it two or three times before I realized what I was doing. And as I, each time I prayed the prayer again, different words sort of bubbled up into focus. I realized I was praying for daily bread. Daily bread, that, that moment being I needed my wife to be okay. But I got to the end of the prayer and I came back around to the beginning again and I said, our father, and it hit me. I'm, I'm praying, I'm not praying to an impersonal force. I'm praying to a father who loves and who cares. And then I got to those words again that I didn't want to pray, but they're in there. Thy will be done. 
but give me my daily bread, but thy will be done, but give me my daily bread. Okay, you're a father, I trust you. When I didn't know how to pray, I unconsciously turned to a prayer that I had learned as a little kid, I, to the Lord's Prayer. It's given by Jesus uh, to his disciples, to the church, given to us to teach us how to pray. And that was all I had. Now, we're going to take the next uh, eight weeks to explore the Lord's Prayer together. And as we explore it, to ask the same question the disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Show us how to pray because we've got to learn how. Now, as we begin this week, this week is kind of an overview of looking at the whole prayer all as one unit. Uh, We're going to take a few minutes to examine first uh, the context of the prayer, that is the uh, where it shows up in the narratives of both Matthew and Luke, the two Gospels that it shows up in. Uh, we're going we're gonna to start in Luke 11, which is where the uh, sort of shorter uh, version of the prayer shows up. If, you, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. But pretty quickly, we'll switch over to Matthew 6. Matthew uh, 6 is where uh, more of the longer, more liturgical version of the prayer is recorded. Luke 11, by the way, if you're using the black Bible under the seat in front of you, that's on page 1033, which you can put your finger on in page 964, because we'll be there shortly. So we're going to first examine the context of the prayer, when Jesus gave this prayer to his disciples, and then we're going to turn and we're going to look at the craft of the prayer. By the craft of the prayer, I mean how we work on the prayer and how the prayer works on us the craft of the prayer. And finally, briefly, we'll examine the content of the prayer. What does this prayer actually say? Goal being to kind of orient ourselves to it so that over the next eight weeks as we go through it line by line, we we know where we are in the context of the entire prayer. So as we explore this, the context, the craft, the content of the prayer, we're going to do it from this mindset, as I said, of the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Now, let's begin with the context. We're starting in Luke 11, like I said, on page 1033. In Luke 11, the chapter starts out, Jesus is praying. It's actually the fourth time that Luke has said Jesus was off in a place by himself praying, and when he comes back, the disciples have a question for him. Luke 11, verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And so, and he said, Jesus said to them, well, when you pray, say... Now, it's a simple request. Lord, teach us to pray. Simple question, I think one that came from their experience of watching Jesus withdraw to pray over and over again. Now, I don't know what was behind the asking of the question. Maybe the disciples could see the the power that Jesus had, and they wanted some of that power, and they thought maybe prayer was the way to get it. If they could pray like Jesus did, maybe they could do miracles like he did. Maybe they thought, well, things are going pretty well for Jesus. The whole countryside loves him, at least in this point in the narrative. Maybe things are going so well for him that it's, it, maybe it's his prayer that's making things go well. If I learn to pray better, maybe God will make things go better for me. Or maybe, Jesus, maybe the disciples just, they'd seen Jesus pray and they saw the, the experience of fellowship and communion that he had with God and they thought maybe if they could pray in the same way, they too would experience that same nearness and relationship with God the Father. 
the relationship that Jesus so evidently had. You know, there are times when I'm praying with a group of people here at Faith, the elders or the elder executive board, uh, a prayer group or a prayer meeting or our staff, where I feel inadequate to pray in their presence because I'm listening to them praying and I'm thinking they know God so much more, more real, more deeply, that all I can do is listen and kind of hope well, kind of get pulled into a deeper prayer experience through their praying. But I would like to be able to do that on my own. Experience that kind of relationship with God that uh, some of the people around here uh, so evidently experience. I think that's what was behind the disciples asking Jesus, teach us to pray. We want to experience what you are experiencing. So there's actually a bit of a, a sense of urgency in the words. Teach us to pray. The Greek sort of implies teach us now to pray. I need to know this now. For what we're facing, I've got to know how to pray. Now, of course, students will ask their teachers all the time, teach me to this, teach me to do this, teach me to do that, teach me to sweep the leg, whatever. Uh, students will ask the teachers, but this is the only place in the Gospels where someone asked Jesus directly Teach me. Teach us. Nobody asked him how to start a church. Nobody asked him how to preach a sermon. Nobody asked him how to cast out demons. They just asked him, how do we pray? I think what what this context in Luke 11, the, the disciples asking, teach us to pray, what it shows us is that prayer has to be learned. Prayer has to be learned. To pray well, to pray naturally, we almost have to do what seems kind of unnatural, force ourselves to learn how to pray, put ourselves under a teacher, adopt a teachable attitude, and learn to pray. That may seem unnatural or counterintuitive to us, um, especially if we think of prayer as simply talking to God. And now that's an easy definition for prayer. It's not a wrong definition for prayer, uh, but if if prayer is talking to God, then my, my kind of first thought is, well, why does someone need to teach me to talk? Nobody taught me to talk. I learned to talk on my own, right? Well, no, not actually. No, none of my words were mine first. They came from everyone around me. Studies show that the, the broader the vocabulary and the more words an infant or a toddler hears, the greater their ability to understand and communicate when they're older in life. We actually only speak to the degree we are spoken to. We only speak to the degree we are spoken to, and we only know how to pray, to talk to God to the degree that he talks to us, to the degree that we allow him to talk to us through scripture. So if if you are sort of at the beginning of a journey of prayer, or maybe you've been struggling with it for years and thinking, I just, I can't figure this out. Babies don't learn to talk on the first day either. It takes them a couple of years. Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged if learning to pray and really feeling like you've got this down takes a couple of years. See, in Luke's context, we learn that prayer has to be taught. We need to learn it. We need someone to teach us. Now, the context in Matthew teaches an additional lesson, uh, that there are right ways and wrong ways to go about praying. Flip over to Matthew 6. 
It's on page 964 if you need to look it up in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. See, in Matthew's gospel, the Lord's Prayer comes in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the famous three-chapter-long sermon that Jesus preached to a whole hillside covered in a couple thousand people. And in part of the sermon, Jesus is correcting the bad practices of the Jewish teachers in three traditional areas of spirituality, charity, fasting, and prayer. Charity, fasting, and prayer. So about prayer, he says, in Matthew 6, verse 5, he says, now when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, there are wrong ways to pray, Jesus tells us. Now, notice, he's not commenting on the content of the prayers that are being offered. He's not commenting on the posture Standing, sitting, standing to pray was the traditional way to pray in Judaism. He's not commenting on whether you should be standing or kneeling or laying prostrate. He's not even so much commenting on the location, except that the location was chosen in order to reinforce not the prayer, but the appearance of being a prayer. You see the difference. The hypocrites, so-called, pray in public places Uh, kind of looking around from side to side, hoping that others will see their displays of piety. It's not prayer that they love. It's being seen praying that they love. One writer notes, the person who prays more in public than in private reveals that he is less interested in God's approval than in human praise. That one kind of hits you, doesn't it? Jesus says they've gotten their reward in full. They've gotten all the, all the praise and recognition they're going to get. So he continues on in verse 7. Now, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Now Jesus is getting into the words we use, the actual content of the prayer, the conversation with God, and he says, don't heap up empty phrases. Now, older translations have rendered this, don't use vain repetitions, which unfortunately is kind of a poor tradition and has also had the unintended consequence of convincing most of us that all repetition is vain. And that's not really the point. Jesus isn't against Uh, repeating the same words in prayer. Actually, if you look ahead in in Matthew's gospel to the Garden of Gethsemane, it says Jesus prayed once, he prayed twice. When he prayed the third time, it says he went back and prayed again using the same words as before. Jesus doesn't mind repeating prayers. In fact, he's probably using the Psalms. That was the prayer book uh, for the people at Jesus' time. So he's repeated these prayers throughout his life. He's not talking about just repeating prayers. He's talking about repeating prayers empty prayers or repeating prayers in an empty way. But even then, simple just repetition isn't what's in view with this word. Most scholars agree that the word would better be translated like the ESV does, heap up empty phrases. Or other translations say something like, don't babble repetitiously. Don't just keep on babbling. 
See, the point is, and this is why he refers to Gentiles, other pagan religions at the time thought that if they, if they listed out the names of the deities they were praying to, if, if they recounted all of their good deeds, then maybe one of the gods would hear, hear their name being called, look down and realize, this, this is a pretty good person, I should answer their prayers. And so much of the, the pagan prayers was simply a recitation of the names of every god they could think of. When they got to the end of the list of names, they'd say, and here's all the good things that I've done, and also here's what I need you to do, and it was this sense of if I just say over and over and over and over and over again who I'm talking to and who I am and what I need done, I, I'm going to wear them down, and one of the gods will answer. Jesus is saying, no, don't just go on babbling repetitiously. Don't heap up empty phrases. He says, your, your father knows what you need before you ask him. It's, it's not, your prayer is not a press release. It's not you informing God what's going on. He already knows. Prayer is something else. It's, it's different than just telling Jesus what's going on and what you need. Because he already knows. There's a right way and a wrong way to pray. It says, do pray in secret where God alone will see you, not out in public so you can be seen as a religious and spiritual person. Don't reduce your prayers to a mechanistic recitation of incantations. Don't, you know, pray and shifting around trying to find the right magic phrase that's going to make God answer you. That's not how prayer works. Prayer has to be learned, yes. We need to be taught how to pray. We also need to be taught how not to pray, which is what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 6. But to summarize all of that, we need to be taught. The context of how the Lord's Prayer is given once to his disciples and once in a sermon and probably many, many other times in Jesus' ministry, the context shows us we need to learn, we need to be taught how to pray. Someone's got to teach us the prayer. Now, if all Jesus had done was left us with, here's what not to do, I think most of us would still be asking, okay, great, but now what, what, what do I do do? What, what do I do now? What do I pray now? Give me some guidelines, you know, teach me the craft, show me how, I need more. And he did. In both Matthew and Luke, Jesus introduces the Lord's Prayer with a simple instruction. Pray then like this, Matthew has it. Or as Luke writes, when you pray, say these words. When you pray, say these words or pray like this. Use this prayer as a model for all of your praying. Yesterday afternoon, I was listening in as Jenna was teaching our daughter, Anna, and a friend from across the street how to make these uh, caramel brownies for dessert. And I kept hearing the same kind of phrases coming from the kitchen. Things like, no, 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 like this. No, do it, do it this way. No, here, hold the spatula like this. Do you see how that makes it easier to mix the ingredients? Or, you know, you could save yourself a lot of work later if you do it like this now. This is exactly what Jesus is doing as a master craftsman inviting us as apprentices into the craft of prayer. He's, he's apprenticing us to him, saying, do you, you want to learn how I do this? You want to be part of this vocation, this calling to know God through prayer? Well, l- let, me, let me bring you alongside and show you how it's done. Do it, do it like this. No, try it, try it like that. If, if, you, if you do it in this way, you'll find you get this result. He's saying, let me show you how. Do it like this. Now, I read a fascinating article this week on, on prayer, and in it, 
the author, uh, she begins the article with the story of her marriage. Uh, she and her husband had both grown up in this culture of authenticity, which uh, for them meant, quote, a commitment to self-expression by embracing each and every feeling in its most unadulterated form. Yet yeah, put that in a marriage, and you'll see how that works. She writes, it turns out that expressing every emotional impulse, however genuine it may be in the moment, did not form us into the kind of spouses capable of loving each other well, or even of being in the same room together. So, one day in counseling, their counselor handed them a script and said, here's your homework. Fight like this. Use this script to fight. Now, at first she says following the script didn't always capture the genuine emotional tenor of what was going on in their hearts at the moment, but she said their current habit of flinging F-bombs at each other wasn't helping much, so they were willing to give it a shot. They said their lines and felt ridiculous. But she says, within about six months, and now having used the script for 10 or 15 years, she said the script didn't do what they were afraid it, it would do. It did not turn them into lobotomized marriage robots, which is her phrase. Instead, it deepened the river of their emotions. It channeled their emotions the way a riverbank channels a river so that their emotions wouldn't flood out and drown one another so they could get past themselves and actually hear the other person. Now, her point, by analogy, is that if, if we come to prayer thinking of it as just authentic self-expression before God, of just the sharing, maybe the venting of our feelings, then we're going to get into circumstances, into situations where we don't have the words to express ourselves, which is exactly what I, the situation I found myself in in the hospital. If the only kind of prayer you have is self-expression, what do you do when you're at the end of yourself? She, she asked the question, she says, what if, what if prayer is more than just self-expression? Now, it's not less than that. We find plenty of self-expression in the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms, all 150 of them, are, are the prayers and the songs of the people of God expressing their emotions to God. But what if it's more than just self-expression? What if, what if prayer is also one of the ways that God works back on us? If it is, then we need a model. When I was in the waiting room and I didn't know what to pray, and I didn't know how to say anything other than, give me what I want. I needed a prayer that would model for me and hopefully turn me into the kind of person who could also say, thy will be done, when all I wanted to scream was, my will be done. I don't naturally say, and God, you do your will, whatever it is. But the Lord's Prayer taught me to. So in that moment, it was the actual words of the Lord's Prayer that I needed. And for the rest of life, it's the model of the Lord's Prayer that I need to shape me in the way I pray. A couple weeks ago, I got to spend an, a week in Iowa just by myself reading and preparing for this sermon series. Uh, I was staying on Jenna's parents' uh, farm. They have a hobby farm, so I had a few chores to do, move the cattle and stuff like that. But uh, at one point, I had to drive out, pick up some parts at a small engine's repair place, and then take it over to a friend who was going to repair a mower uh, for Jenna's dad. 
Uh, friend's name is Wayne. He's not the most impressive guy when you see him uh, first off. Uh, he's, he's a little on the short side, a little soft-spoken, kind of big around, barrel-chested maybe is the way we would say it. He's a little scraggly in the way he dresses and appears, covered in grease and all that. Uh, but when you go up to Wayne and you shake his hand, you realize you are dealing with an ox of a man. Wayne has more fully developed muscles in his hand and forearm than I do in my entire body. I shook his hand and then immediately backed away. Now, what does that to a man? Work. Repetition. It turns out that swinging the same hammer, throwing the same bale of hay, plowing the same fields, wielding the same tools over and over and over and over for four, five, six decades, when you do the work, the work works on you. And over the course of decades, his body became formed by the work for the work which is exactly what the Lord's Prayer is intended to do for us. When we pray with the model of the Lord's Prayer, not only is it our prayer working out, but the prayer itself works back on us. God uses the prayer to work back on us, to shape us, to form us. It doesn't just shape the way we pray or the way we worship. It shapes us. It forms us into the people who move differently throughout the world, uh, people who bring back to extemporaneous prayer the, the new habits, the new patterns, the new hearts that we learn in the Lord's Prayer. When we use it as Jesus intended, we become apprentices in the craft of learning to pray. Now, what is it in the prayer that makes it so effective? What is it in the prayer that works back on us? Well, that's the goal of the next eight weeks as we go through it line by line is to discover what is in this prayer that so works on us so powerfully. But briefly, I just want to summarize it, go over it quickly. We've looked at the context of the prayer, that from its context, we know prayer needs to be learned. It needs to be taught. We've looked at the craft of prayer, how we work on it and how it works back on us. Now, briefly, let's examine the content of the prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us what Christian writers throughout the centuries have called a model prayer or a master class on prayer. There's about 100 books out there called Teach Us to Pray of people uh, going through the Lord's Prayer, kind of expounding what's in it. So briefly, I want to point out just a few details that's going to help us kind of keep our bearings as we do a deep dive over the next two months. The first thing to notice is that the prayer is not intended to be prayed alone. The prayer is not intended to be prayed alone. I don't know if you noticed that. It's intended for community use. Our Father, give us our bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us. Deliver us. It's plural. It can certainly be prayed individually, and I would encourage you to pray it individually, but the prayer finds its natural home in the collected praying of the community of God together. Just as the Psalms were given to the Old Testament community of faith, so the Lord's Prayer has been given to the New Testament community of faith, not just to form us individually, but to form us as a whole, as a people who pray the Lord's Prayer. Now, the prayer begins with words of adoration, sort of a direct address to God, saying, Our Father in heaven. Next week, our former 
senior pastor at Faith Church, Dr. John Crocker, is going to dig into those words for us. John has just recently published a book on the Lord's Prayer called Divine Rendezvous. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, It's a great book. It's sort of a systematic theology of the prayer. And he has spent more time studying the Lord's Prayer than I've been a Christian. And so next week, he's going to bring from that breadth and depth of knowledge uh, his, his study to the pulpit on God our Father. I'm looking forward to it. After that direct address, the prayer continues with six petitions. Notice the first three relate to God. First, it's your name, your kingdom, your will. Only then is it give us, forgive us, deliver us, lead us. Which is a reversal of our our normal tendency. We, We naturally come to prayer saying, help. Sometimes we come first even saying, thanks. Rarely do we come to God first and just say, wow, God. Jesus flips our our natural tendency upside down and reverses the default order to remind us prayer is not about getting God to answer our request, but getting to know him, drawing closer to him. But after the requests, the prayer comes back around with a doxological statement, this statement closing glory of God statement that it says, yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Now, depending on the manuscripts or the the Bible you have, uh, you may not have those words in Matthew's gospel. That's because they're not found in the earliest and best uh, copies of the book of Matthew that we have. But we do know from writings of the early church from some of the first few years that the church even existed, that when the church prayed this prayer together, they would end it together with these words, this doxology, yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Now, most scholars think that that sort of closing statement comes from someplace, probably 1 Chronicles 29, 11. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Chronicles 29, David is in front of a group of people and he says, in front of an assembly, he says, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. So while this may not be original to the prayer that Jesus gave it, from the collected collective wisdom of the church, we learn at the end of saying what we need God to do for us, we come back to the beginning. And we wrap around this statement that sort of crystallizes the attitude with which we bring the prayer. And we say, yours is the power and the glory and the kingdom forever and ever. Not mine, not me, yours. This is like, a, like an extended amen saying, here's, let me just remind myself, this is the God I'm praying to. So, we're going to spend the next eight weeks, line by line, step by step, walking through this prayer, digging into the content that's behind what Jesus says in Matthew 6 and Luke 11. But what do we do this week? How do we apply it this week? I've noticed uh, as I've been talking to people over the last couple weeks about prayer and about teaching the Lord's Prayer specifically, I've gotten sort of two equal and opposite responses uh, from one group of people, uh, usually those who grew up in, uh, in a more of a, an extemporaneous prayer tradition, you know, where you don't, 
You don't do written prayers. You don't pray other people's prayers. It's all, um, you know, just the words you come up with at the time. Uh, People who grew up in that kind of tradition have tended to have one of two responses. Either they've been very hesitant to pray something like the Lord's Prayer, thinking, you know, you don't just recite. That's empty. My heart's not in it. Or, interestingly, they've been very excited to pray something like the Lord's Prayer, saying, I I need something beyond just whatever bubbles up out of my head. I I need the models of prayer that have been handed down to us from Jesus, uh, from others who've gone before us, like the the Collects in the the Book of Common Prayer, uh, or the, the Valley of Vision, the Puritan collection of prayers. They found new life in praying along with people who've gone before us. But at the same time, I've heard from others, especially those who grew up in more of a uh, Catholic or Anglican or Episcopal tradition, a tradition that uses these, these kind of prayers, recites them together. I've heard from some who grew up in that tradition, like, I've tried that. I grew up with that. It was empty then. It's going to be empty now. Uh, I don't just recite prayers. They found life and vitality for their prayer life in praying extemporaneously and spontaneously, of praying what whatever they're feeling at the moment. And neither of those responses are wrong. But I don't think either is fully right either. Our goal with this series is to get to know the Lord's Prayer well enough that we can kind of combine both approaches into a method of application that I hope draws on the strengths of both traditions. So whatever your response is to praying a, a written prayer, I hope you'll join us in this, this applicational suggestion. Here it is. Uh, tomorrow morning, when your alarm goes off, hit the snooze button. Hit the snooze button, and then before you swing your feet out of bed and put them on the floor, just say the Lord's Prayer. Say it to yourself. Say it out loud. Say it silently. Say it in your head. Uh, whatever. Say the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Maybe put a post-it note on your alarm so that you remember to do it. Maybe write it out and put it uh, on a notepad at the side of your bed. Uh, Maybe cross-stitch it on your pillow. And then when you wake up in the morning, you'll go to the mirror and it'll be written right there (laughs) across your face. You won't be able to forget. But before you get out of bed, pray the Lord's Prayer just through once. Now, I listened to a a podcast, an interview uh, this last week Uh, where I don't know how they got on this topic, but they ended up talking about productivity. How do you do things that you uh, want to get done but don't know how to actually get it done? In the interview, he said he felt like most books on productivity are written by neurotic control freaks whose sense of value and identity is tied to their ability to get things done. So they write a book to justify their own neuroses. (laughs) Now, if that's true, then everything we read is holding us to an impossibly high standard we can't achieve, unless you're a neurotic control freak, and then that's between you and your productivity. He said, I'd, I'd much rather listen to somebody, talk, somebody who can't get anything done talk about how they learned to finally get something done. It's like, that's the guy who I think could help me. And that's the same kind of attitude I'm hoping we can bring to this series on prayer over the next two months. Not that... You know, any one of us up here teaching is just some great spiritual hero for whom prayer comes naturally, and we're going to guilt you all into a higher standard uh, that, that you can't achieve, but more in the spirit of, most of the time, I don't know what I'm doing, but I want to try to figure it out, and I hope you'll do the work along with me. 
I hope you do the work along with me and share with one another what you're learning as you're just trying to learn how to pray. So this week, when your alarm goes off, pray the Lord's Prayer. And starting next week, as we begin digging into each line and expanding on its meaning and giving you content behind those words, pray the Lord's Prayer, but expand. Expand on it, phrase by phrase. This is the the advice that the reformer Martin Luther gave to his barber when his barber asked him, how do I pray? He wrote him a letter. It turned out to be a short book or a long letter. It's called A Simple Way to Pray, which took this approach. He said, first, I read scripture. Uh, I, I read, I meditate on what I've read, and then I move to prayer. And he said, I go through each phrase of the Lord's Prayer and I expand on it. And after next week, you'll be able to pray, Our Father in Heaven, and expand on it after Dr. Crocker kind of lays it out for us. And Luther says, sometimes I don't get past the first phrase. Sometimes I do all six. Sometimes I just focus on one. It doesn't matter. He says, just take it and expand on it. Become extemporaneous within sort of the riverbanks of the Lord's Prayer. So that's what I'm going to try to do. That's my commitment. Every day, starting this morning, pray the Lord's Prayer before I get out of bed. Except this morning I forgot until I was downstairs making coffee. That's fine. You're going to do it too. But I'm going to try to pray through it. And in the evenings, I'm going to try to pray through it, maybe at dinner or bedtime uh, with my wife, with my daughter, and just expand on it a little bit. Uh, I try to help Anna learn how to pray using the Lord's Prayer. And I'm sure I'll miss some mornings, and I'll miss some evenings, and I'll get to the end of the day and think I am too tired to pray. I just want to go to bed. Or I'm going to wake up in the morning with my mind already so full of the stuff that needs to get done that prayer isn't even on the radar. But I'm going to try again and the next day, and hopefully over the course of the next nine weeks, the prayer will become not a habit, not even a ritual, but a a formative experience that guides us through prayer so that we can say, your will be done. Give me my daily bread. Your kingdom come. Forgive me of my sins. Your kingdom first, and then what I need. I hope you'll join us. With the disciples and with one another, we'll just say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Father, Heavenly Father, God, we are poor and unworthy sinners. We don't deserve to raise our eyes or our hands towards you or even to pray. But because you have commanded us all to pray and have promised to hear us through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have taught us both how and what to pray. We come to you in obedience to your word and we trust in your gracious promise. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ together with all your saints and Christians on earth as he has taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.